Hey, everyone. Before we get into today's interview, just wanted to drop a little reminder to stay up to date with all the latest episodes of On The Margin. You can subscribe to the BlockWorks Macro YouTube. Just go up there, just click the little uh, subscribe button, or you can click the links at the top of this episode. It'll take you over to Apple, Spotify, whatever your preferred platform is. Just subscribe there. If you could, leave a rating and review. Really appreciate it. All right, on with the show. All right, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of On The Margin today. I'm joined by Quinn Thompson of Maple Finance and longtime friend of uh, yours truly. So Quinn, it's good to finally get you on the show, man. Yeah, great to be here. I've been been a fan and watching a lot. So thanks for having me. Yeah, I appreciate it. You've actually gotten a couple of uh, eagle-eyed listeners. Uh, You've caught a couple of shout-outs in some of the roundups that we've done with Mark recently because uh, the the reason why I want to get you on the program is I think some of both your your macro calls and how that's translated to uh, digital assets has been just really spot on. Um, and I think where maybe for, for listeners, just to give you a brief overview of where we're going to take the conversation here, I'm going to start with some of Quinn's kind of higher level macro views. Uh, and then we're eventually going to translate that into, um, where Quinn focuses on kind of this intersection of digital assets. But before we even get there, Quinn, it would be good to get a sense of, I mean, even like just this year, um, is when I sort of started really following your tweets and you've been very right around, uh, especially things I think maybe to, to call out bulk out is real rates, uh, is something that you focused quite a bit on, um, you know, uh, the bond market, uh, sort of supply dynamics of the QRA and things like that. But maybe, maybe like rewind the clock a little bit, uh, take us back to, you know, February, March of this year. What were you looking at, um, that the rest of the market was missing? And maybe we can segue that into your sort of macro perspective for today. Yeah, no, that, that's a good starting point. I think the big thing that I started to focus on, well, one, I was very wrong on, I was one of the macro bear, economy bear uh, camp headed into the start of the year. So I missed the Same. the Jan 1 to Feb 15th, whatever, the, the crypto run and rest of risk asset run. The one thing I did get right, I guess, there is the Bitcoin dominance. So I was, I was just playing kind of market neutral in that, in that sense. But it, it just caught, like the first three, four months of the year, I was just like, searching, searching like this, you know, there's just such different uh, views across the, the different camps. And what I, what I kind of landed on was that in the old, you know, the last 20 years regime of, of monetary and fiscal policy, where, where people kind of get it wrong, I think, is that the past couple cycles have been dominated by monetary policy. It's all been, always been about uh, rates, Fed, and where that's headed. And it still is. I actually believe we're now in a fiscal dominant environment, and that has a lot of uh, effects um, in the in the sense that you know, in, whereas previously you know you're relying on the Fed put for liquidity, uh, market goes down so much, there's no inflation, growth is very low. Now we have this consistent uh, tailwind of fiscal spending in, into the economy, and so that does weird things, and particularly the the big one that I've kind of honed in on is real interest rates. And and it hasn't been a factor for three years. Like we haven't had any inflation, barely had growth. And now we have an abundance of those. And, and that just causes a monumental shift in, in what the Fed can do at all and and then what those knock-on effects are. So th- that's kind of my overarching view and where I think ultimately people got it wrong and how stimulative that actually is. Yeah, I think pe- people were very attuned to what the Fed was doing. And if you go back to even 2020 through most of this year, I would say, fiscal hasn't really come into the fore. There were some really sharp analysts. Lynn Alden has been talking about the shift from 
monetary to fiscal for a long time. But really, people were focused on this Fed put. And if you go back and listen to podcasts or, or, or you know interviews or whatever during that time, there was this question of, is this the death of the Fed put? That's what people were talking about in 2020 when uh, COVID was happening. And no, it actually was not the death of the Fed put. Um, and that's what folks have been looking for and maybe why people were so bearish uh, going into this year because all they saw was rising rates, uh, still this regime of inflation, and it was hard to see any positive tailwinds. But as it turns out, uh, there's this extremely uh, positive tailwind, at least when it comes to asset prices, which was fiscal. All right, everyone, we will be back to the program in just a moment. But before we do, I wanted to give you the inside scoop about something that we've been cooking up at BlockWorks these last couple of months. So in March of this coming year, in London, BlockWorks is going to be gathering 1,200 of the world's largest asset managers, that's fund managers and allocators, financial institutions, think big banks, payment providers, et cetera, and professional traders at the largest institutionally focused conference in digital assets, DAS London. Now, it's very rare that you get the likes of JP Morgan, Goldman Sachs, Point72, the large HFTs, the family offices all in one room at the same time. So if you want to know what the big money is doing in digital assets these days, this is the conference for you. To give you an early sneak peek at some of the stuff that we're going to be talking about, one, the intersection of macro and digital assets. And where are we in the market cycle? We're going to be talking about real world assets, so that's stable coins, on-chain treasuries, all of that fun stuff. And we're going to be talking about things from the allocator perspective. So what are the big money managers in crypto doing these days? And because you are such a good listener of On The Margin, I'm giving you an extra code MARGIN20. So click the link at the bottom of this episode. Again, use code MARGIN20, and I will see you in sunny London town in March. So how, how should folks be thinking, Quinn, you know, if, if you've got these two sort of separate but related forces of this Fed put, which, you know, acts as, as a signal for liquidity, because if things go bad, then the Fed is going to step in and provide that liquidity. So that can be stimulative versus this sort of more persistent injection of liquidity from, from Treasury. Like, how should we be thinking about that differentially from, a, from an economy and an asset standpoint? Or is it the same? Yeah, it's they're like competing and sometimes they're not. Sometimes they're working together. So like on the Fed side, uh, or, or the, the underlying view, I guess, that, that should be changed from previous is instead of uh, like the economy being zero to 2% at its peak growth, it's, it's really nominally like six to 10% at its peak growth. And that means the troughs are like the previous highs in nominal terms, like <clears throat> where, where we peaked out at 9% nominal this last quarter. Uh, you know, the trough might be three or 4% nominal. And, but on a real basis, you know, we're at 4% inflation. So maybe that's 5% uh, real. And, and when we, when we bottom out, uh, that'll be kind of close to 0% real. Uh, but, when you think about it, all assets are priced in, uh, you know, real terms, and, and returns are measured in, in real terms. And so, uh, on the on the fiscal side, the Treasury has, has stepped in. What I say between the Fed and Treasury about four times this year. So, in October 2022, when when liquidity was kind of crunching, TGA was running down. Uh, we we all know the G7 and every every large uh, monetary and fiscal policymaker got together, and that's when the things were happening and. In, in, UK and, and Japan, uh, that that really marked the peak in the dollar yen um, and and interest rates for for the near term. We we go forward to early 2023. The the Treasury didn't issue any debt, so that was a huge liquidity bolster for the market. Um, it was not the Fed. The Fed continued their operations as normal, actually increasing rates. 
Um, but the, the treasury stopped issuing debt because they hit their ceiling and ran down the TGA. So that was just liquidity going to the market. We had March, uh, which was kind of a factor of, you know, bank reserves and, and things in the market getting probably too low for comfort. Uh, once again, in this case, both the Fed and the treasury stepped in the treasury via the FDIC backstopping all these banks, the Fed via, uh, the BTFP, which basically, uh, gave banks one to one, uh, lending, uh, amounts against their now say 60 cents on the dollar U.S. treasury bill. So that fast forward, you know, there's a lot of these like push pull dynamics coming on. And then the big one most recently was in, uh, late October, early November with the treasury's updated borrowing report, which, uh, that basically signaled two things. They were borrowing less for this upcoming quarter and importantly bringing in the, the tenor of that issuance. So they were weighting that heavily towards, towards short dated T bills. And what the effect that is having is reducing the pressure on long end interest rates. We've seen those plummet. Um, so that's when the stock market kind of sold off at the end of October. Rates were rising. People were pretty late to that. I was kind of surprised. Um, and that's what that drop in r- rates is what's caused this spike in risk assets. And I actually think that cyclically, so just as everybody got extremely, you know, higher for longer, interest rates are going up six, five and a half, six percent. I think that probably is the, the peak GDP print for the cycle. I'm, I'm a secular believer in higher for longer. I think there are these longer term tailwinds, but you know, I generally think we don't get above 5% long-term interest rates for another 12 or 24 months. Like once this, uh, cyclical kind of downdraft plays through. Um, so I think that 5% was defended very heavily. I think it will continue to be defended. And I think we've cyclically peaked and that's what risk assets. I think if there's continued legs, which I kind of believe there will be into January of this rally, it's, it's the market saying, okay, we've repriced, you know, assets higher due to this fall from five to four and a quarter. We might not go back. We might go back up to four and a, four and a half or test it, but we're never going back up to five this cycle. And I think assets will will appreciate that over the coming weeks and months, and and uh, continue repricing higher. Maybe we could even slice this conversation into there's a real and a nominal conversation here, and then there's a cyclical and a secular conversation that's happening. So if I could maybe sum up what you're describing here is your secular perspective on at least nominal rates is that. Um, there, we're going to be in a higher for longer, but we're in this little cyclical dip where we peaked out at a five, five handle on the 10 year, you know, we're dipping down. That's what risk assets are sniffing out. But ultimately, you know, that'll probably come back up in the coming years because we've got more secular inflation. Is that, is that about correct? Is that a good summation? Yeah, that's accurate. In 2022, just to add to that, I think the majority of the, the repricing lower and longer duration assets was simply an interest rate thing. I don't actually think there was much of a growth problem throughout the year. Um, and, and so that, that re-rating lower and, and risk assets was, I think, a, a higher duration thing. And, and that is reversing now a portion of it uh, on a cyclical basis. What do you think about uh, the real rate component of that? So, you know, the, when the Fed started their, their rate tightening cycle, you know, we got first uh, positive, we had deeply negative real rates for a long period of time. Finally, we got on the shorter end of the curve and that sort of peaked with 2.5% Real rate, at, you know, as a tenure and the tenure tips was at 2.5% or just under 2.5%, which that's a pretty good deal, uh, especially compared to what we've had since 2009 in terms of um, real rates on the long end of the curve. You know, when you're looking out on a more secular basis, so nominal higher for longer, 
you know, where, I guess, where do you see inflation there? And are we in a persistent regime of, of negative positive real rates? Or is there a situation where you see inflation running hot and, um, you know, even if nominal rates remain higher, actually the real rates could be negative. Definitely real rates could go negative if, if there's uh, meaningful growth problems. I, I, I don't feel extremely strongly about either, you know, crazy direction in the near term, but generally the, the overarching issue is so real rates being the nominal treasury yields minus your inflation expectations. And so the, the push and pull is the treasury with all their spending is pushing the nominal part of that, the, uh, you know, pushing nominal rates and inflation higher, but they're also hampered by if rates go too high, it's actually stimulative because it's just increasing budget def- deficits, spending interest expense for the government. And as many smarter people than I have, have pointed out, the, the real fix to this is just cutting spending, which we all know going into an election year isn't, isn't going to happen. So you have this continual kind of, I think of it like a base floor uh, like if you look at the chart of oil or some of these commodities, they haven't been like that strong, but they aren't weak also. Like it's just this kind of like base level of, of activity going on that, that isn't really, the floor is not going to fall out. And so it's, you get these spurts of like, you know, little booms in the, in the cycle where they, they flare up, you know, that sends interest rates up. Um, it starts to kind of cause problems for, for the government and, and the cost of that debt. Um, and then they have to step in and, and, the, the treasury or Fed adds liquidity. So um, if in a world where nominal growth is 5%, if inflation is also 5%, like a company's revenues then are growing 5%, what I'm making a year should be growing 5% and your real rate is zero. Um, and where the reason rates have got gone too high now is that pod, like you mentioned, that two and a half po- positive real rates, um, which is just becoming problematic and has to fall. So I think... Um, yeah, inflation inflation expectations have a have a floor basically, um, whereas rates have a ceiling, and and what that kind of implicitly implies is that uh, real rates have to have to come down over time as the Fed is required to add liquidity into these situations. So um, it's just kind of like a bolstering for risk assets and and the Nasdaq, and now we're seeing crypto. Yeah, because that that's I feel like that's my my long time opinion and thesis around this has been negative real rates. I have less of a an understanding of where nominal rates and inflation ends up shaking out. If you held a gun to my head, I would probably say, you know, maybe there are peaks and valleys. Maybe we see the stop-start inflation that we saw in the 40s and the 70s. But maybe the longer term where the average looks more like the inflation average looks more like three, three and a half percent, something like that. Um, the, the question is where interest rates relative to inflation. And, you know, uh, I, I'd love to get your perspective on, you know, just, uh, you, know, you talked about the treasury market a little bit. There's an enormous emphasis right now on fiscal and just the growing debt. Someone actually made the point to me, if you look at what we've just done in terms of nominal GDP, I mean, even though we're issuing debt at a, at a, at a pretty crazy rate here, I mean, our income is growing at the same time. Now, I know some people make a big deal about GDP versus GDI, but let's just call GDP income and, and not <laughs> split hairs here. Um, it, we're not we're not in a much worse off situation actually than we were even a couple of years ago. So I don't know. I, I feel like this has been maybe this is where we can sort of segue into uh, Bitcoin specifically. But yeah, I mean, I think negative real rates is probably the story here until we can normalize things a little bit. And perhaps that is the least the least painful way to to move forward. I mean, what do you think about that? 
Yeah, I mean, ultimately, the way they have to, the government has to service this debt burden is inflation. And so I think that's where people, there's a lot of like, you know, Fed shouldn't do this, you know, but uh, the Fed really only has a, a fixed number of tools and, and things they can actually control. And if they really wanted to get inflation down, they could. And very quickly, they just hike rates about 500 basis points. And there you have it. Um, but <laughs> I think people would not like that outcome a lot more. So you, you, they need to kind of thread this needle of like having inflation. It's not too onerous inflation, but there is some. And uh, that's what we're seeing. Um, and and it's very, very difficult for growth to completely, you know, the bottom come out underneath it if if there's this treasury spending that that I expect to go through in the election year. And then that's just broadly, you know, you have these fits and starts of liquidity windows, tight liquidity windows. And when the RRP come, runs down to zero, which should be in Q1, that's when, that's kind of what the market is looking forward to right now, which is, all right, rates went too high. The Fed and Treasury work together to kind of bolster it for now. But that RRP is the last lever to pull before they just have to cut balance sheet, uh, the, the quantitative tightening. So I think, and they will, they will, right? Like in March, when the bank crisis happened, we got like a 10%, maybe 9% drop in, in markets. And, and I think that's what gold and Bitcoin, like you said, are uh, sniffing out. All right, I want, I want to transition to Bitcoin, but before we do, I mean, one thing I even just thought about when you were describing the RRP running down, you know, one thing that we've talked about on this program, and I know you're aware of as well, is you know, it's been, there's been a shift in terms of how Treasury has historically funded itself and its mix of bills versus uh, bonds or, or coupons. And the historic rate that they've tried to stay around is, you know, 15 to 20% or ideally lower than that uh, with bills. Uh, they've been, you know, Treasury Secretary Yellen has actually started to issue more bills, which is she can sort of get away with and is actually targeting with specific tenors at the uh, money market funds that are parked in the reverse repo. So if that ends up ending in Q1, you could sort of start to see a situation that could go one of two ways, which could be could be problematic. Um, but probably what that means is that the Fed has to start buying again um, because you're going to have to, the government to fund itself is necessarily going to have to issue more longer dated bonds you know, that plus QT could present an enormous problem. And so, you know, you, you might actually, the, the bull case for that would be, okay, by March timeframe, we've we've done enough QT that we don't need to keep talking about that. You know, we're going to have four FOMCs between now and then uh, where maybe we've done enough work on this and uh, actually we can start to shift, we can stop the QT and the market will like that quite a bit, I, I would guess. That'd be maybe the, the bull case here. Yeah, so. and it, in the near term, when when... There's been a lot of talk like Cuppy and follow macro guys on Twitter who are, who are pretty tuned to this is like DMs becoming EMs is, is the theme uh, people like to say, which is that's what emerging markets do is bring their the weighted average maturity of their issuance forward um, and, and reduce that tenor, which in the near term, right, if in short term rates cyclically fall from five to four, I'm a genius because I just saved a, a 1% on my interest rate for those 12 months. But then when everybody stimulates again and it's off to the races again, I'm stuck terming that out at 30 years at six and a half or seven percent. And then I'm less of a genius. So it, you get, you get dicey, uh, with when, when you kind of play too, too close to the fire. Cool. 
All right, let's switch to talking about uh, Bitcoin and crypto here for a bit. So uh, obviously it's been a tough start to the year or tough to end, tough end to last year, let's say for, for Bitcoin and crypto more broadly, but obviously been quite a good year. And I think specifically recently it is felt for those who are in the market, like it's starting to, to heat up um, a little bit. I think as we're talking, Bitcoin is over 43,000. Um, and there's, there's a couple of different, um, you know, catalysts that you could assign to that are reasons why Bitcoin might be performing like it has. Gold actually recently hit an all-time high as well. Um, and I know you've, you focus a lot on real rates, you know, when it comes to something like, like Bitcoin. So is the same thing that's driving the price of gold right now, Bitcoin, is that thing real rates? Like how do you sort of weight what's going on with uh, gold and Bitcoin? And then maybe we can get into some of the more specifics. Yeah, I, I think I think it's actually pr- pr- primarily a macro move in in crypto. I think that you know people the Bitcoin Bitcoin leads. It's, it's the dominant, the largest. It's everybody's gateway into the industry, and and for the same exact reasons, gold is rising uh, and and breaking out. That that's Bitcoin, and Bitcoin is maybe five x levered gold in terms of it flows and and what you know moves in real rates due to each asset. So. That's what's got me, you know, I got extremely bullish uh, end of the summer, early fall. Uh, that, that was really the big, the big driver. Um, if you look back to one of the big things was if you look back to the FTX bottom and you look at the relationship between NASDAQ, gold, Bitcoin and real rates, Bitcoin was by far, it was an idiosyncratic crypto specific event. I kind of call it a false bottom. If that didn't happen, uh, you would have never seen 15K. You probably would have saw 19K, 20K. And so if you're sitting at 22,000, 25,000, and, and you, you firmly believe that your downside is 19 instead of 15, but your upside is the same five or 10X, you know, that gives you a ton of comfort to get really long. And then, you know, the, the, the big nail in the coffin was that, that treasury report at the end of October. Uh, and that's really when you kind of just put, put all the chips on the table because, you have that macro lining up so well in the midst of, as we all know, you know the Bitcoin ETF. And I don't watch CNBC much or, or those uh, uh, you know types of shows, but I would imagine over the next month, you know, we're about a month out from the ETF. It's still going to start getting plastered all over, and and you have seasonal positive flows flowing in, which we all know the reflexivity of this asset class. What's going on, everybody? Thank you for listening to On The Margin. I just wanted to take a quick moment to let you know about a very special offer that we have coming out of BlockWorks Research. Now, many of you will probably be familiar with our platform, but BlockWorks Research is the most blue chip spot to get research, data, governance, models, and a whole lot more about the leading DeFi protocols in the space. I've leaned on our analysts time and time again to explain complicated concepts going on in DeFi to me like I'm five years old. They can do the same for you. If you invest in DeFi or are just interested in it, it is an absolute no-brainer. As a listener of On The Margin, and to say thank you all for listening to the show, you can use Margin 10 for a 10% discount, and that gives you access to everything, which would be weekly in-depth reports, live data, all of that good stuff. So again, that's code MARGIN10 for a 10% discount. Link is in the show notes. Sign up now. Thank you later. Is the reason for the $19,000, $20,000 floor, that was just the previous all-time high for Bitcoin? I actually remember it being kind of an important psychological level that it, the price of Bitcoin fell below the previous all-time high. 
that that's gets sort of mixed, lost in the drama and haze of that particular period of yeah. time. There's a lot going on, but uh, yeah, that did feel like an important psychological level. Yeah, it, it was, and 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 technically, and you know, looking at all, at different levels within the charts, it did. It seemed, um, and just you know, what the implied move in real rates, like the other macro variables, that what happened in the Nasdaq, what happened in the gold, what happened in. Uh, uh, you know, it all kind of implied that that Bitcoin really just shouldn't have hit those levels. I have a question for you. So this, you know, maybe knitting this regime that we were describing before of slightly higher nominal yields, but potentially negative real yields, that's obviously very positive for, for gold. Gold is sniffing that out. Um, Bitcoin obviously is also doing very well. You could it's always very difficult to tell with Bitcoin because there, there are exogenous factors. Uh, macro obviously has an enormous effect on, on Bitcoin, but there are endogenous factors as well. And there's this four-year cycle that, you know, people, every cycle people say it's not going to be this four-year cycle. There's That's pie in the sky and there's no real reason, but it, you know, it's been uh, 14 years and it continues to behave like this. And uh, at some point it, it may, it might've already done this. It might become a self-fulfilling prophecy, but, you know, I'd, I'd be curious to sort of tease out with you how differentially gold versus Bitcoin behaves here and what your sort of mental model is for thinking through, you know, if people are looking to escape financial oppression, negative real rates, where do they flee into? Like Stan Druckenmiller had a pretty good, at least my, my current framework that I'm just lifting directly from him, whereas maybe in a stagflationary regime, that's more of a gold, that's, you want gold and sort of the safety, the flight to the safety asset. But in a regime where the negative, uh, the real rates are negative, but you're pumping and it's growth, baby, then maybe that's more of a Bitcoin play. Like, how, how do you think about those two assets? Yeah, I, um, I, last November around FTX, I, I kind of started getting into go, like that, that whole thesis bit more. And, and, um, I, I, at this point, you know, if you, if I think it's more of like using the assets to, if you want to go risk off, if you're just, you know, you kind of want to sell all assets, you, you would go to gold. Um, but it, again, in, in, in extreme liquidity events in, in GFC, there's, there's a stretch where gold dropped about 40%. So it's, it's, by, it's, still, a, it's still an asset, it's not cash. Um, so that's why I, I'm kind of shifted to the camp of if it's on, you're in Bitcoin. If, it's, if, if, if you don't want to be on, you're, you're just go to cash because gold kind of carries the same downside risks. And uh, without the same upside as, as Bitcoin. And obviously, it's a more volatile asset, so you have to size it accordingly. But I really do think over the next year or two, and, and that's why you're seeing the Bitcoin narrative pick up. We can talk about that a bit later in, in the Bitcoin ecosystem narrative pick up. Is I, I think that it conti- because this is such a macro-driven cycle, um, and you can, you know, the having and all these things matter, but, but, by and large, I, I believe to, it to be a macro-driven cycle. Uh, I think Bitcoin is is the leader because that's ultimately, you know, like you said, it's the real. You know, the other stuff is tech. You know, Ethereum, etc. You go out the risk curve. It's it's more tech than it is a, a complete, you know, digital gold real rates hedge. So, um, I, I do think Bitcoin performs really, really well. And for me, at this point, it's just you got to capture that upside. So when you look at how this is historically played. Uh, there are a couple of like check boxes on what a typical, the beginning of a typical crypto bull cycle looks like, which is Bitcoin dominance spikes. So something you got right this year, right? That's, that's the, the first thing that ends up happening. Uh, and then Bitcoin tends to lead. And ideally what you'd like to see is a spot led 
big, strong Bitcoin rally, which is, if you just look at what's going on today, that's basically, that's basically what's happening. Um, th- then, you know, the halving is sort of an interesting, an interesting period of time. Typically, you know, I've heard this, but this was not my memory. Uh, you know, but, but price doesn't tend to move. Crypto is like very famous for not pricing things in. <laughs> you know, we're, we're a pretty inefficient market over here. And the price doesn't tend to move around the halving till, till much later. Uh, I think it's like nine months or something like that after the halving. Now, the obvious difference right now is that there's the possibility of an impending Bitcoin ETF. Uh, but yeah, I, I guess, you know, when, I mean, A, do you, do you think, how much do you think the halving matters at this current moment? You know, do you think it rhymes with uh, historical patterns where the price doesn't really end up moving till much after the halving? Um, and, or, or should we just be ignoring that because history doesn't rhyme perfectly and, you know, there's this there's a spot ETF that's kind of outweighing that historical trend. Yeah, there's two things on this um, that actually I want to double click on in front. Uh, you mentioned crypto being bad at pricing things in, and it's actually it's actually crypto prices things in. I think as you would expect in an asset class that the volatility is so high. So when you think about uh, you know volatility, elevated volatility. So this, I think actually people in crypto and outside, within crypto, people just go left, you know, whatever, left side of the curve. And they're like, ah, I don't know, it's crypto, anything can happen. And then people outside of crypto are like, same thing. They're like, ah, oh, it's a Ponzi, it's fake. You know, it just does what it's, it wants. But I actually think if you just look past everything, it, it performs like an option model would. If, if the volatility is 100 or 200 versus 10 like, or 20 like stocks, and I have an event three or six months out, out from now, the, the, the variability of outcomes is so high, uh, that you, you can't, you don't price in that event until you're very, very close because all that time value of, of this extreme volatility, anything can happen in between that could send it 50 points one way or the other. And in fact, it, it, it performs just how you'd expect, which is one of the extreme, in my opinion, like, we call it inefficient markets. I think it's relative to the, the underlying asset. It's somewhat efficient, but, but it's just a, it's more of a characteristic than anything of, of the asset. And I think that presents opportunity, particularly when you get to these turning points like we've seen. So I am a disbeliever. I think it's absolutely almost hilarious how perfect the cycles and the happenings have, have intertwined with broader macro cycles and the broader liquidity cycles and you know, just every year that goes by, Satoshi becomes even more of a genius. Uh, I might be complimenting the U.S. government there, but uh, so that's always mind. That's almost that's almost mind-boggling in itself. But so I'm not a big believer in just you know, four-year cycles go to the beach. I think it'll become less so because it is becoming such a macro asset. But the happening is important because. And it and it happened. The move happens so close to it because of this heightened volatility. And so when we get to the day of the happening and that, that supply shrink happens, uh, it, it's, it's, it's real. And what I would say is why we're seeing this move now is the happenings kind of already happened because of the reflexivity of Bitcoin. So what happens when higher Bitcoin price, you get the, the TradFi flows into MicroStrategy. MicroStrategy's stock rises to a premium of, of, of Bitcoin. They issue stock to buy Bitcoin. So sailors bought 1.3 billion of Bitcoin this year. He's got license to buy another 750 million. 
almost offsetting having himself in these last two months. Uh, higher, like yeah. literally higher Bitcoin price keeps it elevated. So then you have miners who don't have to sell as much Bitcoin to fund their operations. And in fact, even getting bullish like CleanSpark, who issued equity last quarter to fund their operations, effectively buying Bitcoin by not selling. So it's this reflexivity of then that creates higher prices. Then you get the retail coming in, higher prices. Then you get miners and everybody just going, okay, FOMO, screw it. We're going levered long. We're buying Bitcoin. Uh, and that you get these blow up tops. But the nature of the asset class is just so characteristically reflexive. And, uh, you know, what, what's Bitcoin at now? I guess in the middle of this interview, it's probably continue rising. So, all right, you brought up a good point. Uh, we were, we were uh, going back and forth a little bit about this, but I think one important detail to underscore about this particular moment in time is that retail has not come back yet. Not even close. You know, there, there were spurts of, you could see, there were these sort of, you know, we'll call them PVP games within crypto. It's clearly just crypto natives buying or selling one thing. There have been runs in, yeah, Chainlink and Solana, but that, that's not retail that's doing that. Those are, those are internal uh, sort of crypto buying things. Uh, eventually, the idea is that retail will come back. I, I would be curious, you know, if you have a time frame, a certain level, I kind of have an internal perspective for, for when that would be, but when do you ultimately see retail returning to this market? I think um, if they return in the next month to front run the ETF, I think you kind of want to run for the hills for a couple months because uh, it's probably the, it's probably the top. My base case at this point is I don't think right now the ETF is priced in. The GBTC discount is still 10%. Uh, to me, that should be zero if the ETF is fully priced in. There's plenty of the CME is now the largest traded uh, futures exchange in, in the industry. That tells me there's plenty of sophisticated actors uh, touching the asset class and would close that discount if the ETF is fully priced in. So right now, I don't think so. My prediction has been 50K. So we are getting closer, maybe quicker than I had even expected. Um, and so I, I do imagine at the time of approval, it gets priced in. But I think what that means is everybody probably has their crypto exposure that they want ahead of that event via Coinbase, MicroStrategy, Bitcoin miners, uh, GBTC, and then the coins themselves. So base case still remains like you, you should be really cautious if we get, if we get extreme strength into that event. Probably settles down. Um, but then, the, like again, you just go back to this macro, this macro push pull of of the secular tailwind being so strong, um, and and you can kind of follow gold, and it, and it's going to stay supported. So you might get a nasty pullback because things rip so much, but um, it's not going to, it's not going, you know, it's a secular bull in my opinion, and and so, um, I would say retail probably comes in around the having is my base case is probably maybe uh, uh, let's call it Q two. Because, and you can see this in different ways. You can see this in stable coin inflows. Um, you can see this in Coinbase app downloads, Coinbase trading volumes, relative and market share relative to uh, other exchanges. So there's a number of metrics to track. It's, it's for sure not happening quite yet. Um, but my, my base case is probably Q2 of next year. Yeah, I, I, think, I think you said it right. That is a really good observation. If retail comes before the ETF, I'd be concerned about that. I... I I don't see that happening at the at the particular moment in time. And I look, what I would say is none of this is financial advice. I will say, you know, I've been very wrong about the regime that we're in at the past time. So like take all this with a heaping grain of salt. But 
one of the things that I find particularly interesting about this, this moment in time is that you can just look at what the markets are doing right now, but all of those familiar signs of like, none of my friends that are outside of this industry are even aware that it's moving at all. I've received no text um, from friends really? no. or family. None. I, none. Yeah. I, none. I actually have to shout out. <laughs> I actually did text my dad the other day because I've made this list of like bull market signals and those yeah. like texts from relatives. And Bitcoin had some crazy move a couple of days ago. And I texted my dad. I was like, you see Bitcoin? <laughs> and he responds. He's, he was like, yeah, I was going to text you, but I don't want to end up on on the margin. <laughs> <Yeah>. So sorry, Dad. <laughs> so, You're so ending up so on, on the margin anyway. He's so dislessed. Well, you know what it tells me? I'm seeing all over Twitter now, everyone's creating their little peak, you know, uh, market top lists. And that tells me we still have room to go because you don't see that at the top. At the top, everyone's saying, what's the, you know, what's the super psych, you know, it's not, it's not, Staying on your toes. So you, you would expect that though, everyone to be kind of this bear market trauma to have, a, you know, trigger ready to sell early. And, and it makes sense. But, um, I, I think on the retail side though, I think, I think that Q2 and a Q1, Q2 would be actually probably earlier, would you say, than normal cycles? Like normally it's maybe nine to 12 and that'd be like more like six. I, I think it's going to be quicker because, you know, 2017, Every, you know, my first Bitcoin purchase was in 2017 at probably 19,500 or something stupid. Um, and then, you know, people saw that. I remember at the, at, at the bank I worked at, it was, everyone was talking about it. And then it happened again, uh, in 2021. And I just think that reflects that, that muscle memory is a lot quicker. I think it will be this time around. So like people, Missed it. They got burnt, but they know what it can do. So I kind of think it'll be sooner. That's why I'm thinking like Q1, Q2. Yeah, I would agree with that. I I think you're right to make the ETF, you know, if and when that got approved. It's sort of which the new all time higher ETF, whichever comes first, is yeah. that is what I would guess. Yeah, that's a good. Or point. when you're spitting to because you know the the media the round number effect is real. You know, I haven't seen people tweeting about that, but I'm sure people will eventually. And uh, yeah, just there's no real reason why it's a bigger story for Bitcoin to go from 49,000 to 50,000 as opposed to 42,000 to 43. But 43 is not a story, baby. Yeah, <laughs> 50 exactly. is a story. Uh, yeah. and, and the round number effect continues to be real. And the, the previous all-time high will be real as well, which... Uh, or the spot ETF is just going to gather a lot of attention. So I think there are these these you know media catalysts that are going to that are going to prove to be meaningful. So you know, let's um, I guess one more question for you on just just cycle and everything before we get into specific uh, plays or maybe ways to again, none of this guy's financial advice, and, and obviously this is very risky stuff that we're talking about here. So everyone do your own research, but uh, you know, ways to to play this if you are interested. So. One debate that I've seen crop up on uh, my feed recently is this idea of, are there going to continue to be diminishing cycles, uh, diminishing returns in these cycles? And for folks who follow, you, you can look these charts up, but basically, if you look at the price appreciation from peak to trough of Bitcoin over the years, the the percentage of increase goes down uh, sort of time after time. Obviously, the peak to trough is still still high uh, for virtually any, any asset, uh, but it's, it's going down and down over time. And I've started to see this debate crop up about whether or not this time is, is going to be different. And I, I would just like to get a sense of, you know, do you think we see the same pattern 
which was repeated in, in previous cycles, which is diminishing returns overall. Maybe that's law of large numbers or probably a law of large numbers thing and more liquidity needed to come in and general dispersion of Bitcoin dominance going down. So the wealth moving into, you know, Bitcoin runs first, then it rotates into Ethereum and then uh, other riskier assets, be it new L1s, dApps, NFTs, whatever that is. You know, does that all repeat or do you see a major deviation coming down the pipe? Uh, no, by definition, I think that has to be true. Um, if, but maybe what people are losing sight of is that like uh, trough to peak last cycle, even though it's diminished, diminished from the previous two cycles, was still like 15x or something. So uh, it's still tremendous, but that has to come down because the size of the asset, the, you know, it's like why Apple can't grow faster than the US economy forever. Otherwise, Apple is GDP at some point. So it will come down, but it's all a relative game too, right? So like if you're playing these assets and yes, it will come down from like, you know, peaking out at like 250 vol or something crazy and it might peak at 175 vol, but also the bottoms of volatility and has also come down. So like three months ago, we were sitting at trading at like 30 vol on Bitcoin or something, which is like barely higher than the stock market. And that's kind of goofy. Um, so there's still plenty of opportunities within in playing that and in playing the kind of the bottoms and tops of the ranges. Cool. All right, let's. I, I would love to get your thoughts on a, a couple of different couple of different plays here, and maybe we can divide the rest of this conversation into like big big categories. Would be crypto equities. Uh, so we can talk about obviously Coinbase, but also Bitcoin miners, uh, things like that. Uh, Bitcoin itself. Um, let's call alternative layer ones. So be that Ethereum or, uh, you know, Solana's of the world, and then maybe uh, dApps or dApp and NFTs as well, just as long as we can go here. So let's talk about crypto equities. You've been very vocal about Coinbase. I have a particular pain on Coinbase because I top ticked it. Um, you can't even see the level that I bought it at, uh, $412. Maybe you go back, you, you can't even see it on the chart. Um, I think it was intraday. So, uh, and, and then I was, you know, I was waiting, I was looking at it at 35 bucks and I was like, this looks like such a good deal. Oh, but there's, you know, uh, tax loss harvesting or whatever. So I just, I had to sell it. Then I had to wait for a month. By that time it had gone up to like 60 bucks. So I was like, I'll wait for it to go back down and it never did. So this is a particularly painful discussion for me, but let's have it anyway. So, uh, Coinbase, uh, and Bitcoin miners, like w- walk us through how you view crypto equities, um, as a play relative to the, you know, like the beta of Bitcoin. Yeah, it's it's a really interesting topic, and I think not not well covered generally. Um, so yeah. I, I think about like focusing on like honestly, if you think about the daisy chain of events that happened that led to the downfall, and then you reverse it, and it's just starting with those assets, and that's really how I've played. I was so think about the assets that were force liquidated. That was the last thing, right? So GBTC and ETH were force liquidated, and Celsius and FTX and all these things. You know, one step above that was, were the abandoned assets, I call them, the, the Coinbase and the Bitcoin miners, these these public assets that everyone's like, finally threw in the towel on crypto, it's over, I'm selling all my my di- digital asset equities. Um, so that came slightly before the liquidations. And then the, 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 the peak of the market rollover kind of hits the, I call it the most beaten down uh, part is the volume and activity base. So that's where you're getting your trading volumes, um, any exchange like a Coinbase falls into this or uh, NFT activity, which is kind of a high high value, um, you know, peak market type of activity, and so 
you just reverse that. And so the start of this year, for the first six, eight months of the year, the best trades were GBTC and ETH. These were the liquidated assets that just mean reverted. Next step, you rotate into the Coinbase. Uh, I think now is Bitcoin miners, and then you're going to get into those. So um, Coinbase is a unique animal because they... So here's an example for you, Mike. And, and I, I kind of think about it in terms of Maple is in the last, okay, what, what's changed from 12 or 18 months? Obviously a lot in the crypto picture, prices are coming back. Our revenues are coming back at a very good clip. But what's different, we're about 30% of the 30% reduced headcount. Our internal efficiency and automation on processes is, is multiplied from what it was 12 or 18 months ago. And we're only two, two months into the bull market. So I think about our business. I'm sure you guys are the same. You look at Bitcoin miners, you look at Coinbase. These companies have cut headcount 50% in some cases. Their costs have come down 60, 70% in some cases. And so they're so lean and so efficient. Their operational leverage to a slight uptick in prices is results in an extreme amount of profitability. So that, that's really kind of the thesis in this early stage, um, for, for those uh, digital asset related equities. And, and, you know, you can kind of even go further out the curve than into the miners from, from there. 100% agree on the operational leverage. One thing that I've also noticed in MicroStrategy explicitly takes advantage of this is uh, crypto equities get a premium um, and actually tend to even outperform something like Bitcoin because it's easy exposure that asset managers can get without messing with the underlying itself, right? So the very simplified version of that is you say, hey, I think Bitcoin is going to go up. I can either buy Bitcoin or I can just go to my brokerage and buy Coinbase. And history would history would show you that actually crypto equities, I think for that reason, sort of have this embedded premium. MicroStrategy is very strategic about selling that premium and using it to acquire more Bitcoin, which is, you know, I understand people poke at Michael Saylor, but that is a very savvy move. And I think it's probably going to pay off for him pretty handsomely, actually. Uh, it's going to go down as, yeah, very successful bet, um, I would say. So... I think that's pretty interesting. One other interesting dynamic out of the miners that I would point out, we I did an interview with Adam Back a couple of weeks ago. Okay. He there's uh, something that Blockstream is doing called Basic. Um and it's a the observation was that Bitcoin mining equipment especially. So everything lags price in crypto, which I feel like is a dynamic not well understood. The price goes up first and then everything else tends to follow. And you could imagine like when the price of Bitcoin goes up, the demand for mining equipment does not go up one for one, it might go up two or three for one. And so do the prices. So uh, the folks at Blockstream had this, and you're welcome, Blockstream. I've talked about this on like three episodes, but uh, uh, but they made this observation of right, an, an investment vehicle where you actually buy the mining equipment and then you sell it at yeah. a premium, which is, which is an interesting concept. But I think that's another tailwind that miners have, actually, uh, where they, wherein they might end up doing. It's, it's hard to diligence miners. They're kind of a tough business, just like gold miners are, but... There's a little bit of extra leverage there if you're feeling risky, I suppose. Yeah, the miners. So I'll give, I'll kind of, so people don't really think about miners necessarily in the right way. I just, I just don't think people think about them at all. It's just kind of like a forgotten area of crypto, to be honest. Um, even though they support the largest network and asset in the industry. So miners, what are they, right? They're, you know, they mine Bitcoin, they sell the Bitcoin, they, they, they profit. So you can value them off their cash flows. Okay. Um, when Bitcoin's at 20, they don't have any positive cash flows. But then when Bitcoin goes to 40, they, they do have positive cash flows. So there's a multiple. You can value them off asset value. Again, when Bitcoin's at 20, those their whole balance sheet is machines and infrastructure to mine Bitcoin. When Bitcoin's at 20, those assets are worth very little. When Bitcoin's at 40 and above, those assets are worth 
multiples more, not just linearly. Yeah. Um, and so you can value net asset value. And then the third is the call option on it's an miners are an embedded call option. So you, you talk about people getting into call options and miners are a call option themselves, that equity, because it's a call option on the forward production of however big the miner is, you know, 10x a hash of, of Bitcoin. And that itself, that so rising volatility is is a benefit for miners. Uh, you know, rising prices. So there's so many tailwinds in here. And to bring it back with a macro component, so one thing that high inflation does in a higher secular inflation regime, it dampens downside volatility. Why? Because let's just say inflation is 20% year over year. That means to break even, stocks have to increase 20%. If stocks go down 20% from, from a level, they're down 20%, and inflation is 20% that year, stocks are down 40% in real terms. So you think back to previous, let's say COVID, when inflation was zero, we had a 40% market drawdown. In 2022, inflation was 10%, and we had a 20 to 25% market, almost 30 at one point drawdown. Those were like the same drawdowns on real terms. And so when you dampen downside volatility, that's, you know, one, that's good for nominal prices, which these are. But with the secular inflation tailwinds, it actually increases upside volatility for these nominally priced assets like gold and Bitcoin. And so you have, again, this theme of like macro tailwinds coming in. If you time it right at the, at the, um, you know, start of the micro uh, tailwinds behind these, there, there's some real plays to be made. Yeah, I would tend to agree with you. I also think, you know, probably we see more crypto equities IPO. There's been a rumor of a Circle IPO as well. Circle is a phenomenal business. I think we've seen, so Circle, the issuer of USDC, uh, stablecoin, great business. Um, I think we've seen a bottom. USDC has suffered a little bit um, in terms of market cap uh, since their DPEG earlier this year. Really fault of the the U.S. banking system more so than anything else, but um, yeah, they're IPOing. So we might see even more supply uh, as well of of crypto equity supply. Um, would love to get your thoughts on relative performance here of let's say Bitcoin, ETH, Solana. So those are for for folks who might not be as in the weeds. Those are sort of the major layer ones in in crypto. Um, you know, the, I guess what you what you might say is you look and say, well, you know, the majors they tend to you know. Uh, Bitcoin tends to run first, then people kind of move one step out the risk curve, which would be Ethereum, and then maybe one step outside of that, which would be Solana. And, and those are sort of the reason it kind of works like that is they're the largest, the most liquid and stable, and they're sort of indices of their different ecosystems. In a sense, they're not really indices, but you could play it like that. Um, do you think that's ultimately how we end up, things end up shaking out this cycle, or do you see something different? I do. I think, though, that uh, it's going to be a little weird when you when you put Sol in that mix, my base case at this stage is Sol's obviously ran. It's got a, it's gotten a lot of hype. I saw some uh, contrarian uh, takes like Ram and a couple other friends on on Twitter who are uh, calling maybe for a local top in Sol ETH. I actually agree with that. I I think there is an ETH trade. I've been bearish ETH relative to other assets this year. I think there's an ETH trade probably going into the upgrade Q1, the ETH ETF, and in Q1, Q2. But but. The soul, I think people still on a, on a longer time frame are underestimating that Solana narrative because it is more than a narrative. It's in the last cycle, soul became extremely, you know, well capitalized and grew in activity, but soul 
in, in the peak of activity, I, I show this chart of volumes, trading volumes, NFT activity, all this was May of 2021. Soul was $60. When Soul peaked at 260, it was November 21. Activity was down 50%. And in this cycle, you have Soul leading. You have some really, really great uh, protocols, user experience being built on Soul. And I think ultimately, uh, I, I actually think it just, you know, there might be fits and starts where ETH outperforms, but I actually think Soul just kind of powers through for, for the bulk of the next, say, two years. I tend to agree with you. I think there's, um, Solana had a moment, it went through its crucible. You know, post FTX, Sam Bankman Fried was heavily associated with that ecosystem. They went, underwent an enormous amount of strain. And I think that was a sliding doors moment for that ecosystem where they could have folded and went into irrelevance, which frankly, most of the ecosystem or the crypto community thought that they would. They did not do that. And I tend to agree with you. I think there probably is a local top here. Uh, you can see the liquidity is moving into Bitcoin and ETH today and not Solana. But I, I think overall, that's actually exactly what happened with Bitcoin. If you remember um, in 2020, Bitcoin ran super hard, ETH lagged. People talked about a barbell back then too between Bitcoin and DeFi it was at the time and now. So as soon as people started talking about a barbell between Bitcoin and Solana, I was like, oh yeah, ETH is <laughs> overdue for a run here. But I, I do think that there's, I think Sol cements itself as a, as a top three um, ecosystem because they've just optimized for something that's so uh, orthogonal or, or, or different from um, what Ethereum and Bitcoin have, have optimized for. Maybe just in closing here, uh, you know, one thing you and I have talked about as well is uh, NFTs. I, I don't talk about that as much on this podcast because whenever I do, people uh, <laughs> people say, hey, come on, Mike, uh, you should be invested in that kind get of it, stuff. Get it right? together. <laughs> get it together. Get it together, buddy. I know this is the macro podcast, but, uh, you know, we're talking about this and I've been looking at it. And I guess if I had to outline the, the bull case for it is... Uh, one, people have totally counted it out. I think they're largely, as an asset, under-owned by the ecosystem. And that, that's what sets up great rotations. Um, the other thing is, I think they're, you know, NFTs is sort of released as a, you know, here, drop 10,000 of these, use it as your profile picture. And I see real innovation in terms of the business model. One of the things that I have been talking about for a long time, I know you've been talking about as well, is I feel like that playbook is being rewritten with uh Pudgy penguins, uh, but they, they, you know, I, I see that you. I have never really talked to an NFT founder before, except a couple that have like a real business model built behind it. And when you listen to Luca explain it, you're like, wow, this makes a ton of sense. Um, and this is just a, a slight variation on a very well understood IP uh, sort of e-commerce playbook here. Uh, but I feel like if these L1s run, one of the things that people are going to want is to put their money into. They want to do things with that. And NFTs feel like an obvious play. So I'd be curious what you think about that. Yeah, for me, my NFT positions, I actually also historically have not been a big NFT guy. Um, uh, and s similarly had reservations of changing my profile picture to a pudgy penguin, uh, a Viking blushing pudgy penguin. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it's, it's, it's kind of my venture bags. I'm more of a, a liquid kind of markets guy. But for me, these are my venture bags for the cycle. I think... NFTs are so beaten down. Everyone's counted them out. We see this with every new innovation in crypto. It happens to every new asset. And it's clear they had product market fit. So I think it's important to find. I don't think every NFT is going to just go. There's just way too much you know, low, low quality stuff out there. But where you look at where the activity is happening and, and why Pudgy Penguins, I think, <laughs> to be honest, that's where all my ETH exposure is right now, um, is... Uh, Look at the chart through the bear market, two years, it's just straight up. So there's clearly a community that cares here. They're clearly doing something right from a business perspective. 
it's very unlike any of the other like board ape and other communities within the ecosystem. So I, uh, I, I think that's, that's my play, uh, on the NFT side. I'd rather just kind of be concentrated on, on a strong bet there. I think, I think that's going to actually really shock people what, what happens. Um, and then the other one is, is on the, on the soul side. So playing, uh, the soul ecosystem as like a longer term, you know, just kind of buy and hold, I think like the mad lads and, and tensorians, but, um, I think, you should play soul NFTs because if you've ever touched NFTs and you're bullish as a, as a venture bet on them broadly, uh, the user experience on Solana and particularly Tensor is, is way better than anything on ETH. Blur's good, but sure. the chain on Solana is just a different animal. Yeah, shout out the Tensor guys. They have, um, both them and Blur, they've sort of eaten their uh, more centralized incumbents, be it OpenSea or Magic Eden, in pretty shocking fashion. Blur and uh, Tensor has just such a small team and such a cool story. So shout out to those guys. Great, um, great guys. Quinn, we, we could keep going uh, for a long time here, I'm sure. But, uh, you know, th- this was a great conversation. Um, if folks want to find out more about you, follow you on Twitter, the work that you're doing at Maple, you know, what's the best way to do that? Yeah, go on Twitter. You'll see some links. Uh, I, I have a Substack I like to write on there. And uh, yeah, you basically get my trade journal with uh, with Maple Maple News on on the Twitter. Nice um, guys, I highly recommend. Uh, you know, a Quinn, I'll, I'll give him credit here. It's been right about a lot, and is uh, I think criminally underfollowed on Twitter. So uh, go give him a follow. Check out the work that they're doing at Maple. A huge fan. We've had uh, their founder Sid on the podcast before. You can go back and, and listen. That was a great interview, actually, on on credit markets. So uh, Quinn, this was a lot of fun, buddy. We'll uh, we'll have to do it again soon. Yeah, thanks a lot, Mike. Looking forward to it. Take care. All right, everyone, thank you for tuning into that great interview with Michael. Just as a reminder, I know I've mentioned it a couple times throughout this interview, but Michael is going to be with us in person at our institutional digital assets conference, DAS London. That is March 18th through the 20th in London. Michael is going to be joining us talking about liquidity, inflation, monetary hedges like gold and Bitcoin. There are going to be many of uh, the on the margin interviewees from the past and a lot of the big institutions, the Black Rocks, the Goldmans, uh, et cetera. So if you're into digital assets and if you're into the type of content that we just covered today, I highly recommend that you go. There is a code margin20, which is going to get you a 20% discount on tickets because you're such a loyal listener. And I appreciate you and just genuinely want to see you in person in London. So thanks very much. Hopefully see you in London, March 18th through the 20th. And again, use code margin20. 